National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If there are topics you'd like us to cover, please email KYMN Radio, and I'll do my best to find experts who can address your topic. We've got a lot to cover today, so let's jump right in. For our dedicated listeners, you've heard me mention the concept of the tools of national power and how nations use the tools of diplomacy, information, the military, and economic power to achieve national security objectives. Today we're going to look at the impact of international organizations and institutions on national and international security decision-making. We'll focus heavily on financial and trade organizations, issues, and impacts. Uh, You may want to take notes in case you have a stockbroker on speed dial. Professor Michael Goldman is our guest. He earned his bachelor's degree at Northwestern University and has a master's and doctorate at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He teaches at the University of Minnesota on the Twin Cities campus in the Department of Sociology and at the Institute of Global Studies in the areas of environment, globalization, cities and development, global expertise, and financialization. He was awarded the endowed Dr. V.K.R.V. Rao Chair Professor at the Institute for Social and Economic Change in Bengaluru, India, and a number of other awards, such as the McKnight Presidential Fellow at the University of Minnesota and a John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. He's part of a transnational team of scholars funded by the National Science Foundation to conduct research on speculative urbanism, land, livelihoods, and finance capital in both India and Indonesia. He's published two scholarly books on the World Bank and international institutions, as well as a series of scholarly and popular articles, and is currently finishing a book manuscript on the new volatilities of city life. Professor Michael Goldman, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you very much, John. Glad to be here. And uh, you're calling in today from uh, where? From Berkeley, California. How's the uh, weather out hour, in California? Two hours earlier. Well, the sun is just rising. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad <laughs> but, you got a uh, cup of coffee in your hand. I see that on, on our Zoom call here. Uh, let's jump right into our discussion. We have lots to cover today. Uh, let, let's take us uh, a, a little bit back in history. Uh, what was the Bretton Woods Agreement, and what role did it have in building the economies of the Western liberal democracies after World War II? Uh, sure, John. Well, um, it sounds rather obscure, but the Bretton Woods uh, institutions uh, really came out of a meeting in 1944, uh, where many, uh, some of the European countries, the United States, got together and realized that the war, uh, World War II, was hopefully about to end, and yet the global economy was a mess, as well as the economies of the countries that were, um, you know, the, the infrastructure was destroyed during the war. So a group of people uh, organized by John Maynard Keynes from England and Henry Morgenthau, the Treasury Secretary from the United States, got together in this, in this uh, old hotel in New Hampshire, Bretton Woods, uh, and sat around uh, for a few weeks and tried to hash out the question of what kind of global institutions can we create to help stabilize the global economy and rebuild it. And so from that meeting came the World Bank, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, and the GATT Agreement, which was about trade, uh, which eventually became the World Trade Organization. And we can certainly talk about uh, about more of those uh, in a minute. Uh, so, 
So we're coming to the end of World War II and this recognition that, that things are just terrible all around the world. How many people were a part of this uh, Bretton Woods uh, discussion, uh, and and which countries were involved? Yeah, it's a good question, because uh, when we think about the World Bank and the IMF, uh, we think about them representing, you know, all 190-plus countries around the world. But at this meeting, there were only a, a handful of representatives from around the world, and like I said, it was mostly Western European and, and the U.S., and... Um, I have a, a press release from the U.S. State Department uh, on the f- that was released on the first day of the conference. It was in July 1944. And the reason why I'll, I'll read a portion of this is just to give you a sense of what the U.S. was thinking at the time, right? So it, uh, the, the State Department press release goes like this. The purpose of this conference is wholly within the American tradition and completely outside political consideration. The U.S. wants, after the war, full utilization of its industries, its factories, and its farms, steady and full employment, stable economy, stable currency, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why our first proposal is what they call the Stabilization Fund, which was became the IMF. And, and secondly, their second proposal, the U.S. Uh, State Department's second proposal, was uh, to promote the worldwide reconstruction of the global economy, you know, the physical infrastructure that was that had been destroyed during the war. And that will become what we know as the World Bank, but originally was called the Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And if I can just uh, highlight a little bit uh, about the, you know, the sense behind that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you just think about uh, World War II, uh, I mean, part of the, part of the uh, fight was to destroy the railways, the industries, the power plants, you know, the factories, um, which, 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 which got to the pulse of countries being able to support their troops, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So the, the U.S., um, which was basically out of the war for most of the time, uh, was able to supply, you know, have full manufacturing going on. Mm-hmm. So before World War II, the global economy, if I can simplify, looked like this. It was a triangle where you had um, resources coming from uh, the colonies, European colonies in Africa and Asia, the raw materials being pulled out of uh, mines, you know, taken on railways to ports, shipped to, to Europe, and fueled the industrial process and the capitalist growth process in Europe, such that the European nations were these imperial powers, right? Oversaw these colonies, extracted the raw materials, produced um, processed goods, like in the case of, you know, rubber boots for, uh, you know, tanks, airplanes, but also, of course, uh, food and appliances and goods and cars and what have you. All that material, all that factory uh, equipment was destroyed. So when the U.S. says we want to rebuild and reconstruct the global economy, it literally wanted to rebuild the mines in South Africa, the railways in Nigeria, right? The the um, the ports in India, and figure out ways to reproduce and strengthen the global economy. But after World War II, have those raw materials circulate through U.S. factories, mm-hmm. which had which were full throttle during the war. Right. So when when um, Truman says in his speech, uh, inauguration speech in 1949, that he wants to um, 
to, to reach the quote unquote underdeveloped regions of the world and have them join the global economy. He means physically, you know, rebuild those mines, those power plants, those railways and those ports so that those raw materials could come to the U.S. factories and in a sense rebuild the global economy through the U.S. economy. Sounds like a massive infrastructure bill to me. <laughs> <laughs> More than $2 trillion worth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's, uh, let's press on. You mentioned the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. Uh, so who runs that, and, and how does it serve the international community as, a, as an institution? Yeah, sure. Well, um, the IMF was, uh, the International Monetary Fund, was, was critical in the 1940s and the 1950s, and it still is today. And its job was to, in a sense, uh, stabilize currencies, right? Um, make sure that, uh, that, that currencies didn't collapse, but also didn't overinflate. So the IMF is basically run by these sort of highfalutin economists who are trying to see the macro economy of the globe, you know, the global economy, but also nations. So when you have really high inflation in Argentina, or you have currency collapses in Haiti, uh, they, the IMF steps in and says, look, we can refuel your economy, that is pump in dollars into your economy, but under conditions. So the IMF is famous for, it's what they call the conditionalities, which is uh, you know, what they call structural adjustment. And, and part of that is to make sure that the currencies are more in line and accommodate the global economy. So if Haiti is a currency collapse, how do we rebuild the currency such that, you know, the, the, the shops that produce our underwear or T-shirts or what have you can, can, re, you know, can rejoin the economy? But one of the problems that many countries uh, who are forced, if you will, to borrow from the IMF feel is that one of the mandates is to keep the value of currencies down. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is, in a sense, it keeps uh, you, you pay less, you, um, you, you produce, you, you know, the value of your currency is less in, in your local economy, but it makes your production, your factory goods, or your sugar or tea uh, cheaper on the global market. So therefore, more attractive. So on the one hand, the IMF uh, tries to institute this very kind of strict sense of economics, which is keep your labor costs down, keep your raw material costs down, and then you will be an integral part of the global economy. The problem is, is that most countries end up feeling like, well, the wages are too low. We're not getting compensated enough for our T-shirts and underwear and shoes. And so we remain poor and can't pay off our debt to the IMF. Mm. So, you know, that's the, that's, if you will, the, the unintended effects of this kind of very strict notion of economics. Sure. So you also mentioned the the World Bank. Uh, so what is the World Bank? Who runs that institution, and how does it function uh, in support of the global economy and and actually even uh, international security around the world? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, the security question is really uh, hidden or implicit in this whole uh, question of development and economic growth. But I think, uh, um, well, I mean, when when Truman in nineteen forty nine first uh, first uh, pushed, you know, the U.S. to get serious about the World Bank and the IMF, it really saw an economic opportunity, A, but also the 1950s, you know, uh, one of the big ideological challenges of the world was, right, capitalism versus communism. Right. And so the World Bank was 
the the push at the World Bank was to get to the countryside and get uh, you know in a sense introduce U.S. technologies in the farming sector, the green revolution, to to offset the quote unquote red revolution, right? So a lot of the the, the if you will the revolution, revolutionary movements in China and India uh, throughout you know throughout the world uh, was to overthrow its leaders and to become you know uh, free countries, anti-colonial, and part of that. Uh, the, the pushback from the World Bank and the IMF in the name of security and national, U.S. security, but international security was to offer the fruits of our capitalist economy. Uh, that is, you know, fertilizers, pesticides, tractors to to to, in, if you will, invigorate the countryside so that people would not choose rebellion and revolution and instead choose, you know, capitalist economic growth. So the, the, even though these institutions call themselves non-political, you could see from the first loans they made that they were highly political, but you, you could also see the security interests and the development interests hand in hand, if that makes sense. Because the more you infuse capital you know, into the countryside of, of let's say, India um, and um, throughout you know, the, the African continent, there's uh, perhaps more economic opportunity than what the anti-colonial movements throughout these places uh, were, you know, were striving for. But if you look at some of the earliest documents with, for example, Robert McNamara, whom you know, was the defense uh, secretary mm -hmm. during the Vietnam War and under Johnson, and then became the head of the World Bank in the 1960, late 60s, early 70s. You know, he made it unambiguously clear that this was a struggle, just like he realized when he, if you will, failed in the uh, Southeast Asian countryside, uh, he wanted to succeed throughout the global South, uh, you know, Africa, Asia, mm -hmm. uh, by introducing these inputs in agriculture and forestry and fisheries to uh, win over the countryside. And he used that language. Um, and, and you can see the security side folded into the economic development side of the, of the formula. So the World Bank, that's usually led by an American, is that right? Yeah, correct. And the uh, IMF, usually by somebody from international background, is that correct? Europe. Europe. Primarily okay. Europe. Okay. So we know there's also there have also been uh, other international conferences on, uh, on the future of global cooperation and the economy. Uh, how about the Bandung Conference in 55 and the Arusha Declaration in 67? What, what were those and why, how, how different were they from the Bretton Woods Agreement? Yeah, no, I mean that's a really that's a really good question, and it's it often gets neglected in the storytelling about our global institutions. And I, and uh, thank you for asking. You know, in 1955, uh, which was 1955, so it was after World War II, you know, after the smoke rises and the and the the fields clear, there was still a concern that there were many countries that were uh, still under colonial power or slowly evolving out of. But the British, the French, the uh, you know, the Japanese and whatever had been pulling out of these economies, but not all the countries were independent. Uh, these countries, some of the leaders of the free countries uh, decided to organize a meeting. They called it the Afro-Asian Conference, and they invited uh, leaders or, or, in, or movement leaders from throughout Latin America, Africa, and Asia to have their own Bretton Woods meeting, if you will. And it was in a bandung, a, a small city in, uh, you know, 
uh, not too far from Jakarta, Indonesia, mm-hmm. and they met for th- for a week or so. Represent, and, they, and there were 29 countries that actually, came, uh, you know, leaders came that represented uh, half the world's population, which was very different than the Bretton Woods meeting. And there, you know, the topic was um, really interesting: Asia Africa Strategic Partnership, which was a like an institution that was created from that from that meeting. Mm. And the discussion was very different. You know, the discussion was not about currencies or factories or the global economy. It was much more about um, um, cooperation and participation. Basically, the question is, how can Indonesia work with Thailand? How can Kenya work with Tanzania and together, you know, rebuild our societies? Mm-hmm. So the language was very different. You know, the language was about rebuilding society, the cultural dimensions, yes, the economic, the political dimensions, whereas at the Bretton Woods meetings, just, uh, you know, six years earlier, it was very much about currencies, economic, uh, and how to rebuild, if you will, the factories, you know, a different angle on the question of the global. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so the, the I, you know, I won't quote from it, but the, the, the meeting in Bandung was, you know, was about cultural exchange, but it was also about how do we support each other as we come out of colonialism. And, and the support question was not strictly about firms or businesses or currencies. You know, it was much more about cooperation. You grow rice, right? We grow cotton. How can we make a, a, an economy that is mutual? Uh, which is, you know, the language, as you can see, is very different. Sure. And, and then, and then um, a few years after that, uh, some of the independent countries in Africa, uh, well, uh, came together, and uh, Tanzania, which became a free country, uh, had this had a, a came out with a declaration in 1967 called the Arusha Declaration, which was really a political statement for all of Africa. That was some of which, you know, uh, well, 1967, many of the countries had just become liberated from Europe. And there, uh, you know, the Arusha Declaration, which which circulate, you know, which is a, a you know memorized by people in grade school around the world, in particularly in Africa, was much more about uh, all human beings uh, are equal. You know, the, the right for freedom of expression, the right for religious expression, the right for cult- cultural difference. There's one sentence here in the Arusha Declaration I'll highlight is. Uh, well, two. One is that every citizen has a right to receive a just return for his labor, which means a living wage. Mm-hmm. You know, the second, another uh, part of the declaration that all citizens together possess all the natural resources of the country in trust for their descendants. You know, which is like a, a critique of the colonial economy, sure. which was how can we how can we extract as much resources as cheaply as possible to produce you know, to use as raw material in factories elsewhere. This is like, hey, let's let's rethink this question of poverty and development and, and say, how did we become poor? How did we become impoverished? And how can we make, rebuild our society based on, the, on these kind of um, questions of freedom and equality and justice rather than economic growth? And so th- here you had in the 50s, this, this widening division between what uh, leaders in Africa and Asia were calling for and leaders in Europe and the United States were calling for, you know, Bretton Woods versus these. Yeah. So it's an interesting moment. 
And, and it, I, I'd say it's even uh, today it's still uh, an appropriate topic to consider when you when you look at uh, the investments that China is making around the world to get access to natural resources from a lot of these same former colonial Absolutely. nations. Yeah. Absolutely. So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Michael Goldman from the University of Minnesota. We're discussing international organizations and their impact on international security. Uh, so, Michael, we've covered a, a few of the larger financial, uh, international financial and development conferences. Uh, can you tell us about uh, any of the other contrasting perspectives for these conferences, uh, the goals behind the conferences, anything, anything else our audience should know about the differences between them? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Well, um, you know, I have great respect for John Maynard Keynes, who was uh, – you know, who was the premier economist in, in the UK. And then, uh, you know, Keynesian economics is a type of economics after World War II, which was basically we need to put the government or state in the center and have, you know, what's best for the people drive the notion of how we invest in our economy. Mm-hmm. You know, Keynesian economics, which is, which is all but disappeared in the world today, <laughs> was very much about... Uh, Let's think about our society and, and make the economy work for our society. Uh, so Keynes was, you know, highly respected in the 40s, and he actually died uh, soon after the conference that he organized, the Bretton Woods Conference. But, it's, but in, in, in his um, biography uh, that was published in 2002, there are some, you know, quotes from his diaries, memoirs, and letters. And one quote I want to highlight to show you the tension that exists in this kind of logic of economics. You know, what's good for the for Britain and, and the United States is good for the world. And he, had, he, he said off the cuff to one of his colleagues, he said, the new world, this is a quote from his diary, the new world, which, which means Africa and Asia, uh, because Europe considered itself the old world, right? The new world had to be yoked and kept yoked, you know, like an ox to the old world Europe and U.S., if the latter were to enjoy durable peace and prosperity. He said that in 1946, actually, just before he passed away. And, and uh, you know, the reason I want to highlight that is, is because he, he, like so many people, naturally had a very colonial mindset, mm-hmm. right? Because there was, you know, 100 years of colonialism. The British decided that, that as an empire, we can help the world best, you know, uh, which was keeping them yoked. And he felt the transition to the new global economy, we still have to keep the colonies under our control if we in Europe and the United States were to enjoy durable peace and prosperity. So you can see um, the kind of two minds, right? On the one hand, he wanted to rebuild the global economy. And, yeah. and at the same time, he wanted to make sure that the, that the imperial powers remain superior. So, so if I can map that out visually uh, on the radio, <laughs> you know, what, again, what I, I think what I said earlier was to rebuild the infrastructure like the railways, the p- power plants, the mines, mm-hmm. in order to continue to extract the raw materials from the ex-colonies, which is so critical for the kind of capitalist global economy, and have them run through, uh, you know, factories in Europe and factories in the United States. Now, if you remember, the problem with that 
logic, uh, one of many, is that uh, European factories were devastated by the war. Right. So the the U.S. economy became super powerful and became the economy of the world, which everyone takes for granted today. But it wasn't, you know, in the 30s, in the 20s, in the, uh, you know, the early 20th century, was because, uh, you know, full throttle, we used the World Bank to to offer loans to all these to many of these countries in order to rebuild the infrastructure, but not to change, not to be influenced by the Bandung Conference or the Arusha Declaration, but really to think in terms of this kind of Keynesian and Morgenthau logic of we rebuild our factories, we rebuild the economy, and then hopefully the and the benefits will trickle down. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. but it, but of course it was our our uh, our firms, our companies that own ended up rebuilding and owning the railways, rebuilding and owning the ports, rebuilding and owning the mines. So a lot of the wealth and profit came to the United States. They used that money to to rebuild and to give out free loans to Germany, France, right. UK, to rebuild their infrastructure. So the, so the, the thir- if you will, the third world or the ex-colonies were getting loans with interest to, by the World Bank with uh, strict uh, strictures as to how that money should be invested. And and the United States was giving free loans to Europe so they could catch up and quickly rebuild their factories and participate in, you know, the, the um, you know, the benefits of the U.S.-run global mm-hmm. economy. Right, right. So let's go back, if we could, to the IMF and the, and the World Bank. Uh, you know, they... They say they stand for for one thing, but some might say they the impact they have on developing nation, nations uh, isn't necessarily ideal in some cases. And I think what what we've been just talking about here for the last few minutes sort of indicates that th- there's not exactly a uh, quid pro quo. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, how would you frame the true impact of the IMF and the World Bank on on the developing nations of the world? Yeah, no, that's a that's a good question. You know, I I uh, wrote a book on on the World Bank, and, and it, it took me a long time. I spent a lot of time inside the World Bank. I did what we call a ethnography of the bank. You know, mm-hmm. I, I hung out at the bank. I, I went to meetings. I interviewed people. And I still couldn't. I, it took me a long time to come up with, like, a, a simple graph or a simple chart, you know, or to, to, to decide um, how to measure the impact now of 75 years of the World Bank and the, and the IMF. So I, I have two, two measures and tell me if this is useful. So one measure is uh, if if the project is a, is development, and development means you know develop uh, uh, African nations, Asian nations, Latin American, Caribbean. Um, what was what were their economies like in the 1940s, and what are they like today? You know, and so one measure that I, I was able to uh, to uh, find was if the, the the power of colonialism was not just military might, of course not. It wasn't just. It was also uh, strategic economic might. And that is that what colonialism successfully did was ha- divide up the continent of Africa, let's say, and each country produced one essential raw material, like rubber or cotton, right, or copper or sugar. And so there's a there's a ratio calculation that someone made to show that under colonialism, most of those colonies basically produced one raw material for the global economy. And what that did was it made them completely dependent upon the price that we offered them for that, you know, that good. 
and secondly, that they have they were completely dependent upon the, if you will, the empire or European countries for the other goods mm. that they needed, like food, you know, yeah. <laughs> clothing, you know, etc. So this, if if you could imagine the success of, of of colonialism, in part, is measured by the fact that each of these countries was only producing one raw material for the global economy, making them dependent in so many different ways. In 2010, I think, which was the last time I saw the numbers, you had many of those same countries with that similar ratio producing one, maybe two raw materials for the global economy, equally in debt, equally you know, low wages, equally high poverty rates. And so when I asked ask the World Bank, what have you succeeded in terms of development? You've basically continued the extraction of raw materials, but you haven't really distributed. There's, you know, there's very little of that justice and wealth distribution that the Arusha Declaration and the Bandung Conference were calling for in the 40s and 50s. So w- one measure. So, so I, you know, so the question is, why after 75 years is Kenya not producing goods for Tanzania? Who, both, you know, their neighbors. Mm-hmm. And why isn't Tanzania producing goods for Kenya under this sort of World Bank development project? If you look at all the projects, they're really about extracting what's good for, you know, constructing an, the Apple phone, mm-hmm. you know, the iPhone, or what's good for, you know, the, the Toyota Prius or whatever, you know, which, which, which can benefit countries, but because of the negotiation process of a free trade economy, what you have is you have extremely low wages and raw materials that are destroying the environment for those countries, but not producing things that are helping them uh, become self-sufficient or helping their people uh, sustain themselves. And there's no kind of regional cooperation. There's no, oh, wow, you have palm trees. We have good soil for root, you know, for tubers. Mm. Why don't we figure out ways to maintain our environments and, 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 and exchange locally? You know, when I go shopping, of course, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a luxury, but I'm able to buy food from my local, uh, from the farms from Wisconsin. You know, mm-hmm. the meat from Wisconsin, a lot of the tomatoes come from hot houses in Minnesota. The honey comes from Minnesota. You know, I see myself as supporting farmers and enjoying a good life, if you will, by buying local. But the, but the, the way in which the World Bank and the IMF have set up the global economy it's not about uh, buying, selling, trading locally or sustainably. It's really, you know, uh, this, this other sort of treadmill of production. Sure. And then there's, there's one. So th- wait, does that make sense? I mean, it, it does. Uh, it does. Uh, we, we need to press on. There's a few other things yeah. I want to make sure we have time to talk about. For our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Michael Goldman from the University of Minnesota. We're discussing international organizations and their impact on international security. Uh, so we were just touching on the international trade component. And, of course, the World Trade Organization, the WTO, uh, is out there today, replaced the old GATT, as you mentioned in the start of our discussions. Uh, you also mentioned uh, the Global South. And uh, I wonder if you could define what the Global South means, which nations maybe are included, and how international institu- institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, and even the World Trade Organization have impacted the global south? Yeah, good question. It's a, it's a, it's a very complex, uh, <laughs> broad question, so I'll give you three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's all about terminology. You know, there's certain terms that uh, people fight for to represent themselves, and then they become 
uh, pejorative or derogatory, you know. So at one point, there was a, a, the movements of peoples around the world against colonialism, and they called themselves United, the Third World. You know, the First World were the capitalist uh, democratic countries, Europe and the United States. The Second World were the communist countries, Soviet Union. And the Third World were these scrappy independent countries or ex-colonies that were trying to unite under some sort of umbrella. So they called themselves the third world. But now, you know, we say, oh, you know, we have the third world, you know, in the, in the war, you know, war-torn parts of our country or in the impoverished parts of our country. So the third world has become now a derogatory term, right? Oh, those are poor people, uh, not, not people fighting for independence and justice. So there's a new term that has circulated, and it's, it's probably inadequate, but it's, it's, it's so far a neutral term. It's called global south. And it just means if you look at the map of the world, you know, flat two-dimensional map, you have uh, Africa, many parts of Asia and Latin America in the southern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, you have Australia and New Zealand, which complicates it. But so if the global north is Europe, Japan, United States, the the ex-imperial powers, now the, you know, the, the power within the global economy, then global south represents the united, the rest of the world that in a sense, wants a greater voice. And so the, today, the, the language is of the global south, and maybe tomorrow that will, remain, that will become, you know, passe. So we use that term, especially at the university or in international organizations, to represent uh, the, what some people call the developing countries. You know? mm-hmm. I prefer not to use developing because it suggests uh, some sort of chronological historical timeline like they used to be children and now that we're developing to be adults and developing you know is misleading because uh because they you know these countries became impoverished because of colonialism not Mm -hmm. because of their lack of skills or technology or whatever sure so global south to me sounds neutral now the the question you, you pose which is what kind of voice do these countries have uh in these global institutions the wto the world bank and the imf uh, and that's what they've been. Uh, these countries uh, have been fighting for for years. Uh, you know, greater voice. So back in the old days, <laughs> you know, fifties, sixties, and seventies, basically you had the like the group of five, the big five. You had five countries uh, that controlled half the voting power in the World Bank, and then you had you know one hundred and seventy or one hundred and eighty, now one hundred and ninety countries just kind of scrapping to to get a voice uh, with the rest of the, you know, and, and the, the Security Council, which is just a handful of countries in the United Nations, have veto power over, you know, the, what the rest of the countries say in terms of international security and such. So there's been a struggle uh, over the decades to, to gain more power, you know, countries, big countries like Brazil, Nigeria, of course, China and India have been gaining voice. But mm-hmm. the little countries that, that really represent a huge portion of the global population are still pretty much left out, um, unfortunately. And that gets reflected not just in voting power, but in the, um, the way in which these negotiations and lo- loans and conditionalities get constructed. And so a lot of, uh, so for example, in, in very interesting, in Latin America, uh, 10 years ago, um, many of the countries were becoming more mi- what we call middle income countries, Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela, Chile, not today, but 10 years ago, uh, the economies were becoming stronger and stronger. And they basically decided to pay off their debts to the World Bank mm-hmm. and the IMF and just disassociate and create their own union 
you know, their own bank, their own currency stabilization fund, their own kind of development praxis, uh, which collapsed. <laughs> but it was it was it was an attempt to, you know, decentralize this whole question of development and growth and justice. And, um, you know, it, it's it's still for the future to be told uh, whether countries like India, for example, and certainly China. So, for example, China has created its own development bank. Right. And, uh, you know, you brought up uh, implicit in your statement is that China is kind of uh, wreaking havoc in countries around the world, <laughs> pushing, you know, highways and railroads and ports and uh, shipping lanes uh, for its own benefit and getting these countries, you know, far into debt. And I think this is the next, you know, issue on the table is uh, this development model didn't work, didn't work well with the World Bank. And I don't think it's working that well with the Chinese Development Bank as well. Yeah. Uh, so I'll, 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 I'll put this to you. Uh, when, when I teach, uh, I often ask my students uh, to put themselves into a policymaker position and consider what they would do if they had the power to sort of fix things, uh, create reforms. So if you were directly advising these in international institutions and you had an opportunity to advocate for reform, uh, that would benefit all nations, uh, including the, develop or the, the, the global south, I'll, I'll use that term, what so, might you advocate for in the way of reforms? Yeah. Maybe uh, maybe two or three. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I think your students would probably come up with a better answer than I can. But, <laughs> um, but, but I think, um, you know, like on a philosophical level, I think if we reach back to the old days of the Arusha and the Bandung, you heard the way in which countries were trying to articulate their desire for development in terms of social and cultural and environmental, you know, and spiritual, intergenerational. Um, and I think that's the kind of language, I, th I think basically we need to uh, subjugate what we think is the economy to society and social needs. So the question should be not how do we, how do we uh, depreciate the currency so the goods can become more cheaper from that country, but rather how can we uh, empower these people, you know, with a living wage, uh, health insurance, you know, social security. How can we how can we help these people in their impoverished condition? Because it's clear that the model of economic growth, as the center of all our decision making, has failed. Hmm. You know, they're still producing you know Hanes underwear in in the Caribbean, and people are still dirt poor, and we're paying you know a dollar or two for for a pair of shorts. You know, the dollar stores are are the biggest. You know, chain stores successful during the right, pandemic. Right. All those goods are produced in the name of economic growth, but are, are keeping people poor. So if you read those old documents, I would suggest the World Bank has one of these kind of consciousness raising you know, <laughs> sessions where they think, well, maybe we shouldn't put economics in the center, but something like uh, philosophy or social good or social justice in the center. What do people need to end poverty? And part of that is to understand the history of the creation of poverty. And I think the World Bank has played, a, unfortunately, a sad role in perpetuating poverty. So one role is decentering the, the logic of economics and putting it in the center, well, what do we need? You know, what does society need? Mm -hmm. And then build an economy around that. So whenever something goes wrong, like, the, you know, there are forest fires, then we say, okay, now let's readjust the economy to, to meet that, uh, that, that crisis. Mm -hmm. But right now, the World Bank says, okay, well, more growth in the forest will eventually tame the forest, you know, which, of course, doesn't work that right, way. Right, right. It sounds a little bit like uh, 
uh, you know, the the business roundtable. I'm sure you've heard, uh, heard yeah, of that sure. organization. So they they have recognized that uh, uh, may, maybe large international corporations uh, that are broadly represented in the business roundtable have more of a responsibility than just profits to their shareholders. Exactly. And even here in Minnesota, the Minnesota Business Partnership, uh, they are stepping in to take a look at some of the societal challenges that we have uh, here in the state of Minnesota. And these are top-notch uh, business leaders from, from across our state. Uh, so maybe we're having a bit of an awakening uh, in the economic world uh, in the business world about the fact that you know economics should be more than just profit margins, maybe benefits to society as well. Just exactly yeah. what you've been saying. And also, if your field of expertise, you know, secure, national security, if you think about the logic, well, you know, it's about peace. That's right. right? It's, that's not an economic, <laughs> uh, an economic quotient. It's, it's peace, and peace requires, you know, compassion and yep. agreement and compromise. Yep. Uh, that's not necessarily the language of, of you know, development economists and right. such. So there's a lot more we could discuss today. Uh, we just have a couple minutes left. Uh, I know you've concentrated a good bit of your work on India, and India has a rapidly growing middle class, which uh, presents some interesting challenges in and of itself. What should Americans know about India today? And uh, you can expound a little bit. Uh, we could, frankly, probably do an entire show just dedicated to India, and maybe I'll have you back at some point to do that. But what should we know about India today? Wow. Well, uh, so much. You know, uh, to, it's, it's now... Uh, has one of the largest middle classes in the world, you know. So the the IT revolution, but also the offshoring of jobs in United States and Europe, you know, from the banking sector, insurance, office work, has now been since the you know the two thousands has been shifted to places like India and the, all the computer management, the data management stuff, and that's created a middle class that's been absolutely phenomenal in its growth, right? But um, so that that's the positive. That's the one, on the one hand. On the other hand, with the you know the the if you will the monopoly of Amazon and Microsoft and Google in this whole now cloud technology, a lot of that data management expertise that was worked by Indian professionals that helped the economy expand and and wages to go up um, is now being automatized. Mm. If that makes sense. Yep. That is, we figured out ways in which right. uh, algorithms can solve the problem of clerical management that once, you know, the, the computer software engineers were doing in, in India and the Philippines and elsewhere. So actually the economy now is, is very volatile because those jobs are starting to disappear and the, the salaries that were once so great are starting to drop. So you have a kind of increased volatility. In a sense, it's becoming more like America. And I think uh, both the United States and India have to learn from each other and figure out you know, how can we um, stabilize these drop in wages? How can we, in a sense, stabilize these jobs that are coming and going and keep them onshore, if you will? You know, I mean, India can produce and, and whatever it wants to, to survive. But unfortunately, because it's in debt to the global economy, you know, it, a lot of this agriculture gets shipped out to the Middle East and Europe and gets dollars to repay its loans. And then you have people without food. Right. So you have the same kind of inequalities that, uh, that you know, one would hope that with this rise of wealth in, in India, there can be, a, again, this kind of rethink of, okay, now let's figure out how to keep, the, if you will, the wealth in the country and distribute it in a way such that we can alleviate poverty, empower people, you know, increase wages. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it, this is like what we call a, 
a pivotal moment, you know, or, or a, a conjuncture where hopefully there can be a shift towards, a, in a sense, more justice, uh, because now it's clear that India can do it on its own. Right. You know? It's an exciting moment, but it's also a very volatile moment. And I'll comment on, on India's rising uh, middle class the same as I've done in the past on, on China's uh, rising middle class, that if, uh, if people who are in the middle class in India and China uh, decide that what it means to be middle class is to consume uh, the way American middle class uh, consumers have done for the last 50 years, then uh, it does not bode well for, <laughs> for natural resources around the world. No. Now, there was a famous line by Gandhi, you know, back when he was struggling against independence, uh, for independence against British. And pe- people were saying, he said, look, if we, if we reproduce the British model of economics, you know, of growth, uh, you know, we're one of the largest, most populated countries in the world. How many worlds would we have to consume to produce the wealth that you know, England has? You know, he says, it's a non-starter. We can't do it. <laughs> So we've reached the end of our show today. Uh, Professor Michael Goldman, thank you so much for joining us today on National Security This Week. Well, thank you, John. It's been a great pleasure. And say hi to Northfield for me. All right. And, and like I said, uh, maybe we'll look to get you back uh, maybe sometime in the fall. We'll talk uh, specifically about, about India. Okay. Absolutely. So I was uh, I actually had an opportunity to catch a show on PBS the other day, uh, Extinction: The Facts, uh, which is a documentary by uh, with David Attenborough, uh, streaming on PBS and, and on your streaming services. Uh, talks a lot about kind of the developing uh, how how the global South has been impacted and whatnot. So for our listening audience, if you are looking for something to to really sort of uh, continue this conversation and think about the sustainability factor uh, for a global economy. Extinction, the facts, it's called, is a good good show to watch. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. Look forward to joining to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. If you have topics you'd like us to cover, please contact KYMN Radio. Have a great week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.